Welcome to Coaching Culture, the podcast where we discuss how we can use sports and not let them use us. I'm J.P. Nervin, the founder of Thrive On Challenge, and the mission for this podcast is to connect leaders in athletics to help us create a transformational culture by building leadership and character. Now let's get started. You're listening to episode 57, Applying Atomic Habits to Your Team with our guest, James Clear. JP, this week we're going to get into part two of our interview with James Clear, author of the book Atomic Habits. Um, And in this week's conversation, we're going to really focus on um, one of the challenging questions that James actually asked in the beginning of the interview, which is, if you want to change your team or your culture or your program, you first have to start with what are the variables that are under your control as a leader or as a coach? Um, And as he goes through the interview, he's going to really highlight four key areas here. Number one being our own personal example. Um, Number two being the power of social norms on a team. And he's really going to get into the the best way to leverage social norms so that they're serving your goals is by choosing who is on your team uh, and in pursuit of those goals with you. The third thing we're going to talk about today is how we design our environment. Is our environment helping us to build systems that are going to take us closer to where we want to go or is it inhibiting our progress Uh, toward those goals. And finally, he's going to talk a little bit about his own communication strategy when it comes to his writing and his speaking um, in a way that it's incredibly simple and incredibly effective that I think uh, coaches can really latch on to to better communicate with their players, with their parents, with their administrators, uh, and and others that are associated with their teams. So I think it's a great segue into kind of the second part of the conversation, which, you know, is really about your personal example is... Um, very inspiring, you know. Obviously, in a lot of your articles, you share just you know a little bit about yourself and a little bit of how, the habits you developed, and it means a lot more because you live what you you know you talk about, and I think that's critical for us as coaches. And so we, you know, that's why in the first part we've talked about developing good coaching habits, um, and that can be around everything, in my opinion, from the way we sleep, the way we eat, um, you know, our exercise that we're modeling all those things, as well as you know, our empathy, you know, how are the language we use, are we kind, you know, all those type of actions and behaviors. Um, so now beyond our example, which I'm sure, you know, you know, is, is, is critical. And that's really, really important. How as a coach, how as a leader, can we inspire other people and help them to move towards action into developing good habits? Hmm. Well, uh, The first way you have to answer that question is to say, what am I in control of? Because there are a lot of things that you don't control. And so it doesn't make sense to focus your energy and effort on that. So a coach is is in control of the the own example they set. Uh, They're also in control of who they recruit for their team and who they bring in. And that's probably the single most important lever that they could pull for inspiring others to perform at a high level is making sure that you have the right people on board. So, First, this is assistant coaches, um, and you need to make sure that like the coaching staff is moving in the same direction, uh, and that you have people who are all aligned with what you're looking to do. Second is the selection of the players. And uh, I really benefited from this when I was a, a college athlete. I've said before, your teammates are kind of like your family. You don't really get to choose them, um, but you're there every day with them. And uh, The exception to that is if you're the coach. In that sense, you kind of do get to choose them to a certain degree. Uh, You at least get to like nudge them uh, to to come toward or to you know just kind of initiate the conversation. And um, 
And I think that that's incredibly powerful. And there's a lot of research that backs this up, not just for sports, but for habits in general, which is that one of the most powerful forms of motivation is the social norm. Uh, so whatever the, the group is doing. So for example, you know, we, uh, when we have a job interview, we wear a suit. When we get onto the elevator, we turn around and face the front rather than looking at the back. Um, when we buy a house, we mow our lawn and trim the hedges. There's no reason that you have to do those things. Like you could wear a swimming suit to a, <laughs> a job interview. You could face the back of the elevator instead of the front. You could let your house get overrun and not, you know, never trim the bushes. But we don't do those things because we know that we'll be judged socially for stepping out of line, uh, for being weird, for going against the grain. And that is, uh, it's, it's so powerful and common that we often overlook it. We don't really think about it. We're like, oh yeah, of course, everybody's going to wear a suit to a job interview. But the social norms of the group count for way more than we, uh, than we think. And so the, the point here for teams is that there's a group of behaviors that are normal, so to speak, for each individual on that team. And if you select the right people, then those also become the behaviors that are normal for the group. And some of this is uh, dictated by how you shape what happens at practice each day, what you say the values of the team are, and so on. So there's a little bit of teaching that's going on here as well. But if you have a group that has a social norm that is not aligned with what you want as a coach, it's going to be really hard to overpower that just by telling them to act differently. Um, it'd be like telling somebody, you should wear a bathing suit to a job interview, but then they know that everybody else is going to be judging them for that. Um, and so there are a lot of subtle ways that that works too, with like teammate interactions and things like that. Um, so selecting the right people, I would say is the first thing, uh, that a coach can do to inspire others to perform better. Uh, the second thing that is within a coach's control is environment design and setting up the environment so that certain actions are easy. Uh, there was a story I was told about Paul Anderson, who's a really famous uh, Olympic weightlifter. I think he might have been the last American to win a gold medal in weightlifting at the uh, at the Olympics back in like the 50s. Oh, wow. And um, anyway, he's incredibly strong, squatted like a thousand pounds. He also was a very good football player, and uh, and he was a football coach. And he at practice when he was coaching later in his career, he was coaching kids. He knew that weight training would be important for them to do, uh, but the school didn't have any resources, and there's also just a limit on how much time high school players can spend uh, doing all this stuff. So he brought squat racks and weights out to the field, and then in between drills, when players were resting, they would do like a set of 10. Um, and the point here is that he changed the environment to make it easy to do the behavior that he knew would pay off for them. And this is something that is definitely within your uh, control as a coach. You can s organize the practice facility to be however you want. What do you? How can this be laid out more efficiently so that people can get more things done, that they can use the the, the limited time that you have for practice in the highest and best way? Uh, and then the same is true for you know for all other aspects of it, whether it be recruiting or reviewing uh, the games or tape or film or whatever. Um, there, there can always be optimizations and improvements made to the environment so that certain behaviors and habits are easier and others are harder. And uh, it can be equally as valuable to make a bad habit difficult to do as it can be to make a good habit easy to do. 
Uh, if there are certain things that you don't want your players falling into, well, how can we arrange that so that it's less likely to happen? And, um, you know, for example, uh, if you don't want your players going out and partying the night before a big game, then stay at a hotel that's like 30 miles outside of downtown where there's <laughs> nothing to do rather than something that's like right on uh, Main Street or right, you know, right down, right downtown. And that's just a simple environment design thing that removes some of that from the some of the temptation from um, from the environment. So anyway, point being, uh, the people you select and the environment you design are two really powerful ways to alter the habits of your team uh, that are within your control. Absolutely love those. I think they think people overlook a lot as they think they can they think they can recruit a certain type of player with a certain mindset. They think they can kind of change that that mindset, um, and I feel like I actually had a guy on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, Stuart Armstrong. He just talked about how the changing, developing ability and skill is a lot easier than than changing the mindset, especially when mm. you don't have the other component of the environment right. It's for coaches that are starting off and building their culture, uh, it's absolutely critical. I think that they sacrifice some maybe ability. Uh, for the right mindset so that they can later on bring a player with a poor mindset or poor habits and all that. Um, and they can still, you know, be put in a situation where like you said there, the social norms are going to, the environment's going to raise them up. Right. Right. And it's particularly important to create a social environment that does foster those good habits because the desired behavior of the individual is often overpowered by the normal behavior of the group. Um, so whatever the group norm is usually wins out, even if you've only got, you know, uh, one person who's pushing in the opposite direction. You know, you're a really good communicator. You have, you write well, you speak really well. And so you're obviously very intentional about that and how you present things that inspire people. You know, we've talked about the environment. We talked about how we model it and the people we bring into it. But, you know, is there any connections you think that a coach can make for the way that you communicate something, whether it be an article or you're speaking uh, to an audience, that they could then take into their relationships and the way they communicate with their players? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so one of the frameworks I like to adhere to when I'm writing an article is, uh, and it's a common format for a lot of science writers to follow, is story, study, lesson. So I usually start with some kind of story or historical example because the narrative is what people remember. And this is true. This is true for, I mean, you'll see it at the beginning of each chapter in the book, but it's also true uh, for when I speak. Uh, if I'm on stage and I'm speaking to a group, I get off stage and nobody remembers the research studies. Nobody <laughs> remembers the numbers, but everybody remembers the stories. And, uh, and so there's something about the human mind that naturally gravitates toward a narrative or toward an example. And it can be true even just for a metaphor. Uh, you know, like it's, it's nice to, for example, one that I often use, people talk about how can I make habits easier? And I'll say, well, imagine you have a garden hose that has a bend in the middle of it. And if you want to increase the rate that water goes through the hose, then you have two options. First, you could crank up the valve and force more water through the hose. Uh, but this increases friction in the environment and adds tension to your life. Or you could simply remove the bend in the hose and let water flow through naturally. And this reduces tension and removes friction from your life. And so then I'll go on to talk about why it's important to uh, increase the friction associated with bad habits and reduce the friction associated with good ones. And often you can get better behavior not by trying harder, which is the equivalent of cranking up the valve, 
but simply by removing some of the things that are weighing you down or holding you back. Um, and so that little example about the garden hose is much easier to remember than if I was going to cite research or some kind of, you know, advanced study or theory or whatever on, on habits and friction. So, uh, I think that narratives is a, an important thing. Now, the second piece of my story study lesson format there is some type of research or some type of reason for doing it. So, you know, you can imagine if you're a baseball team telling them a, whole, a great story about a team that, you know, like did a hit and run effectively or something like that, or had a suicide squeeze they laid down or whatever it was. Uh, but then giving them the stats after that of why we're going to be doing this. Like, guys, we're going to call this play in these situations because here are the numbers on how quickly it works out. Um, and there'll be plenty of players that honestly probably won't care that much about the numbers, but they'll know that you have a good reason for it. They don't yeah. need to remember the number as much as know that you, you have a good reason for doing what you're doing. And I think that, uh, as a coach, this is something that I think would be frustrating a lot. You can make the right decision as a coach, but still have the wrong outcome occur mm -hmm. just because it didn't work out. Doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. And I think it's important for players to understand that and to know the logic behind your decisions so that they can see why we're doing the things we are and everybody can be on the same page and say, look, just because, I mean, a sports in some ways, all, every sport is a game of chance. You can't control how the ball bounces or, you know, how a particular thing goes. Um, so if it doesn't work out for you, that doesn't mean the coach made a bad choice and giving them some type of number or stat helps them see that and conceptualize it. And then the, the third piece of story study lesson is a practical takeaway, an action set. So you can say, Here's the narrative. Here's the story about how it worked out for a team or why it was a good idea. Here are the numbers. This is why we're doing this. And then here is the drill that we're going to do to practice it. Or here's the practical application of what this looks like. This is what it means to practice this particular technique or the skill. Or if you want to apply it more broadly, this is what it means to be a good teammate. Uh, this is what I expect of someone who's a captain on this team. This is how you apply this idea uh, to your teammates or whatever. So uh, I think that basic framework of hinging it on a story, backing it up with a little bit of uh, numerical power or some kind of measurement, uh, some kind of logic, and then, uh, and then giving them the practical takeaway, here's how to actually do this. I think those, uh, that basic framework could probably help any coach. And I love that because with, especially with this new generation of athletes, they, want to, they, they need to know the why, you know, to get that buy-in more than ever. And mm. you know, I like the structure of that because sometimes I feel like when we go to explain why to an athlete, we can kind of tend to ramble, uh, grasping at straws, just hoping that they're going to buy into the reasons we're presenting there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have fallen into that trap myself. I, was, uh, I can remember I was a weightlifting coach when I was in college uh, in addition to playing baseball. And I can remember explaining a particular weightlifting strategy to another athlete. And I, I did it all through theory. I was like, well, there's this thing. And it just it totally fell flat um, because I was being too – I was basically just doing study lesson. Here's the, here's the, I didn't have any story behind it. Um, and so the, I think going for some reason, flowing in that format, one, two, three story study lesson, I think it helps it, uh, connect better than, uh, than not doing it that way. Well, that's, that's phenomenal. Um, here's one, one question. So I don't know, do you still coach today? Are you still in some sort of coaching or no? I'm not doing anything right now, uh, this year, but I certainly will be in the future. Yeah. So you've, you're cut, you're in the, you're, you're around sports. So, you know, stuff that goes on out there. We've talked about a lot of the good habits that we can do as a coach. And you've shared some of those there. 
What are some things that you see coaches doing today? And you just shared one that you struggle with yourself. But what are some things that coaches can do today or that are doing today? They're actually creating barriers to player motivation and to player habits. You know, we, we, you shared some mm. things that help that. But what are things that we should probably stop doing that, that could be pretty helpful as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I don't have a specific answer for what you should stop doing, but I do have a higher level principle that I think applies to this, which is that um, I've noticed this in coaches that I've had as well. You, as a player, you come up underneath a certain coach or two that tend to form your framework for how, what it means to be a good coach or how you approach a particular problem. And then I think this becomes increasingly true as you become an assistant coach or you do your first coaching job or so you kind of are indoctrinated in a certain style of coaching, so to speak. Then, and I've seen this happen multiple times, this person becomes the head coach. And they basically just become like a new version of the person that they trained under. Uh, they, they just imitate the, um, the format and the style of the previous coach that they had. And the question that I have is, of all the possible ways that there are to coach a particular sport or a particular group of people, what are the odds that the first way you learned it was the optimal way to do it? And it's very unlikely that the first person, no matter how good they are, it's very unlikely the first way you learned how to be a coach, the person that you trained under, was also the optimal way to be a coach. And so it doesn't mean that there's nothing useful from that, but it does mean that you kind of need a commitment to continuous improvement to experimentation, to interviewing other coaches about their philosophy. I just had a, I just had a meeting with a, um, a guy who coaches division uh, one swimming and he did something I thought was really brilliant. He, every month for like the last year, he has interviewed at least one uh, coach, at another high level program. And he just started right at the top. He went to the people that were yeah. at the national championship the year before. And he was like, you will be surprised how many coaches or assistant coaches will give you a little bit of their time and just talk to you for a half hour. And he just writes down literally everything he wants to know from them and tries to go through as many questions as he can. And I love that because he's looking at how all these other programs are running. And then you, a couple things happen. One, you start to triangulate in on what are the fundamentals that pretty much everybody's doing. It's like, okay, we can't skip over this stuff. Everybody's doing this stuff. But two, you also start to see that, you know what, different programs are at a high level and they're doing it in different ways, which means that, um, which means that separate from the fundamentals, uh, everybody's just kind of trying to figure it out and doesn't necessarily mean that anybody has this perfect system, uh, which I think is important both to know and to uh, get you to question your own system because we, we get, the more you do something, the more you get tied to it. This is the downside of building habits. The, the upside is you can do things without thinking. The downside is once you can do something on autopilot, you stop questioning whether you should be doing it at all. You stop thinking that much about like, is this the most effective way to spend my time? And so I think um, I can't say specifically what coaches should stop doing, but yeah. I can say that if you're committed to continuous improvement and try to prevent yourself from getting locked in to whatever the system was that you got indoctrinated into or that you feel comfortable with now. Uh, that's really the only way to make sure that you continue to improve and optimize the way that you're coaching. Otherwise, otherwise you just get stuck in a rut and you find all these justifications for doing it. You know, it's like, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is my style. That's the kind of coach I am. Uh, this is what people need to hear. You, you can come up with any rationale for sticking with it. But um, but I think ultimately it ends up harming 
your performance and probably the players too. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier about the importance of mindfulness, just kind of being mindful of, you know, why do I, why am I doing this way, and, if, and I having a good reason. If there's not a good reason, then you should probably uh, <laughs> explore a different option. And the other way is, how does it feel to be coached by me? How does it feel on the other end mm-hmm. of this, and being mindful of those, and and how our behaviors impact other people, I think is so critical in coaching. Yeah, I would agree with that. The internal. Um... The discussion with yourself about, you know, all habits, kind of your point about mindfulness, all habits come from the process of behavior change always starts with self-awareness. You have to be aware of your current habits before you have the chance to change them. If you don't know what you're doing automatically each day, it's almost impossible to adjust that. And so you just keep falling into the same vices over and over. So there's no easy solution to it but knowing that that is in challenge and then questioning what you're doing and why you're doing it can help keep that top of mind and give you a better chance of improving rather than just falling into the same patterns oh man this has been absolutely fantastic i'm you know i'm gonna really respect your time here i got this hour with you and i'm really excited about your book i don't know about any book that i've been this excited about um to to read and to kind of and to kind of just see how i can apply it to my life and and also with the other coaches that I work with. So uh, where, where can we find, where can people find you, um, your website, Twitter, where's, where's best for just people to follow your, your stuff? Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited to share it too. Uh, so the best place to find my work is at jamesclear.com. And uh, you can just check out the articles there and see what interests you. The book is called Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. And uh, people can check that out at atomichabits.com. And we have a bunch of bonuses associated with the book and uh, additional material and and exercises and so on. Um, But yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. So Nate, one of my biggest takeaways from the second part of my conversation with James Clare was this idea of social norms. And that looks different for a lot of coaches uh, based upon the level they're at and their context, you know, because some coaches out there, are you know in college and they're recruiting somewhere in high school and they've got a hundred kids coming off the team and you know other coaches maybe have a much smaller pool of players to select from uh, but you know we can do this you know start to set up some social norms for our team and through a variety of ways and some of those ways are through the cuts we make you know how we select our team some of it's you know how do we choose uh, and select playing time you know who gets to step out on the field or on the court. And the other, the other aspect is in hiring new coaches. And so as I started to go through a culture shift myself a few years ago, I started to look for coaches that were maybe less experienced but more in line with our vision. Right? I started to value that kind of their values uh, more so than their experience in coaching per se. And instead of trying to get the best athletes for the, our team uh, to come out for the team, I started to go around and encourage uh, the young men that were skilled, not, not necessarily void of any talent, but uh, to encourage those young men that I felt aligned more with our values and vision for the program. One of the hardest parts for this whole process for me were some of the cuts I had to actually make. You know, I had said we were going to clean things up as a program. Uh, we were going to make this more about a team that we all want to be a part of, that worked hard and had great attitudes and treated people well. And when it came time for the season, I actually had to turn away at one stage our best player and just say, like, I'm sorry, but you haven't shown that you're willing to be a part of this program. And that was really, really hard to do that. Um, And a lot of people questioned that. And I'm sure people would still question this day whether I should have done it or not. But I can tell you the impact on our culture was huge. And it really freed up 
our, our culture to grow. Um, and because it, he had challenged the social norms for so long. And, and another thing I also did was, uh, you know, that I, I started to focus on the playing time. And there was one of our other really top players and he just sat the bench for the first, you know, month and a half of the season because he hadn't bought in completely to what we were asking. He was kind of halfway in there and we just felt like putting him on the court meant um, that we were endorsing that type of behavior. And so through a few different ways of cuts and playing time and hiring new coaching staff, we were actually able to address some of the social norms in our program. Well, JP, there's no question that social norms can be a powerful influence in your program culture. I remember we had a transfer student come in a few years ago and came to our first summer workout. And you know, we do a lot of game-based stuff in our practices. And so um, a lot of those games, in order to score points, you either have to make a, a basket or else you have to get possession of the ball. And so uh, we don't play without a bounds. We just, we just play for possession of the basketball. So Nico was in... Uh, one of our drills and a loose ball kind of rattled over in her direction first day in a, in the new program. And she just sort of watched it roll over to the wall as everybody ran by her and, you know, jumped on it like a fumble. And everybody just sort of looked at her like, why didn't you grab the ball? When did you go after you were right there? And, you know, it was, it was such a new thing for her. She hadn't played that way before, certainly practiced that way before. Um, but it didn't take her long to figure it out, you know, again, because, that's the way we do things around here, you know, and so when you have new players that come in or new coaches that come in, when those norms are strong and they're firmly established in your foundation, uh, they can be pretty influential in trying to guide everybody in the same direction. Um, but as you said, it takes some sometimes some difficult decisions to be made in order to get those norms to be established with that kind of authority. Another thing that James Clear said, which actually uh, was a question he asked, you know, it was, what are the odds the first way we learn to coach is the optimal way to coach. And boy, do I wish somebody had asked me that, you know, 12 years ago when I started coaching. Because I, you know, like like many of us, we just get right into coaching and we just, you know, we coach the way we've been coached. We've coached, you know, by somebody that maybe we've worked for as a, as a coach. And I never really thought about that. And so I just kind of got into it. And, and that really, I think, is a great question because I think we need to not be afraid to question anything and everything about the way we coach. Because, Nate, I truly believe there's always a better way to do things. And I think that that's probably what I'm most proud of in my own personal growth, you know, in the last 10, 12 you know, years of my life is uh, where I was as a coach 12 years ago was, you know, I thought my way was the only way and the best way. And now I've realized there's pretty much always a better way. And I can always be questioning and challenging and learning and growing. And that's what I love about James Clear so much is he's constantly asking you know, what is the optimal way of doing things? Not just the optimal way of coaching, but what is the optimal way of living? Well, JP, I think even being willing to ask that question of is there a better way requires a, a humility and a little bit of that vulnerability that we've been talking about from Daniel Coyle's book. You know, when I think back to year one at Lindmar, for me, there's a long list of things that we could certainly do better in terms of trying to build a program and build a culture that we want to have. And you know, one of the main pieces for us is just this general area of communication, both on the court, trying to be better communicating offensively, defensively, but even off the court. You know, one of my many failures from last year was we had a number of players that, you know, in part because it was the first year and we didn't have a lot of real close relationships. So you're just meeting those players for the first time and, you know, coaching them for the first time. They don't know what to expect from you. You don't know what to expect from them. But there was a number of situations that we talked about at the end of the season in our exit interviews where players 
you know, would say that they, they felt frustrated or they didn't understand what their role was or they didn't understand what was expected of them at different points during the season, but they were afraid to come and ask me or they were uncomfortable coming and asking me, you know, questions to, to clarify that or voicing their frustrations um, with how things were going or, or with their role or what have you. And as I look back on that, it's easy to sit there and say as a coach, well, we're going to set a goal. We're going to communicate better this year. Um, and, and even, you know, we sort of sometimes use a hashtag like on our shirts or on our stuff that says, you know, hashtag we talk like that's going to be our thing this year. But without really a system in place, without a, a very clear process of how we're going to go about becoming better communicators, we're really not going to make a lot of progress. And that's that's probably the biggest challenge from, you know, the entirety of this issue of this interview for me is what system is going to help us to become better at communicating? And I think there's two parts to that. I think for us, number one, it's creating more opportunities for communication, whether that's between our players or between coaches and players, that we're going to be deliberate in our schedule in creating times for one-on-ones or two-on-ones or, or even in groups of four to be able to just to talk and to do little quick status updates. How are things going? What questions do you have? We can give feedback as coaches. Players can connect with each other. And really trying to, um, you know, create more opportunities for belonging cues to be shared and for players and coaches to be vulnerable with each other to build that trust so that we can communicate better. And I think in doing that um, deliberately, I think that there's opportunities then for those habits of good communication to be able to build as we're modeling it, as we're teaching it in some of our mental health Wednesdays, and then we're creating a system where communication can take place off the floor we're hoping by being an intentional in creating that system uh, that we will become better communicators both on and off the court this year. Well, my last takeaway, JP, from from James Clear here is, um, again, it's in the realm of communication. I was actually um, in Arizona for a coach's clinic here this past week, and I, I listened to a presenter talk about the difference between kids these days and the way kids were 40 years ago or 30 years ago. And he said, you know, 40 years ago, you tell a kid to jump and they say, how high? And today you tell a kid to jump and they say, but why? And one of the things I love about the way James Clear talks about communicating in his writing and in his speaking is using sort of that three-part presentation. The first part being a narrative or a story or sharing an experience. It's sort of an entry point for your audience. And oftentimes when we're trying to connect with kids these days to be able to explain why we are doing things, which I think is important just in building the connection and, and building your own credibility as a coach, you can't necessarily just jump in with, you know, with research or with science or um, with the reasons. You have to be able to connect them to a real life experience. And I think James is outstanding. And you can hear that in the interview in terms of how he just responded to many of your questions with a story, with research, and then taking your team or taking your parents or taking whatever it is that you're communicating with to the lesson. What is applicable to us? Why does it matter to us? And as we've structured kind of our mental health Wednesdays over the last couple of years, um, not necessarily intentionally building on what James shared today, but I see a common pattern in the best lessons that we've done have really followed that model, that template of beginning with a story, um, sharing something that's research-based or a study, and then figuring out what is applicable in our situation to our culture today and how do we want to be different as a result of that. And that's been an incredibly effective way for us to be able to explain the why to quote-unquote kids these days. Well, that's it for this week's episode. If you found today's episode to be really valuable, please share it with someone else and go to thriveonchallenge.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter to get the coaching notes PDF. 
uh, for this episode. I send them out every week, and that way you don't have to take notes while you're listening to the podcast. Also, special thanks to James Clear. Please support him. Uh, Go to Amazon or wherever you buy books, and be sure to buy Atomic Habits. Also, check out his website, jamesclear.com. It's a fantastic resource for coaches. Next week, we're going to be continuing our conversation on Daniel Coyle's book, The Culture Code. So tune in next week, and thanks for listening in.